Chapter 13 What Quelled the Ranting In which the author conveys what caused him to abandon a purgative and idealistic chaotic campaign to wake up others, a vain wrestling to be heard by, in fact, his culture as a whole. I'm very much a man of the 90s. I turned 20 in 1990 and got a TV and went to the movies and listened to current music on the radio during that decade regularly for the first time. As far as pop culture goes, those were very formative years, too. I'd been shut out of the pop culture of the 70s and 80s almost entirely, sheltered from it to keep myself pure for God. But now, I was living on my own and could drink deeply at those streams, and I did. The 90s were a time when you went to the movie theater to carefully not be shocked despite what was shown, to be inwardly aghast at what you had just seen but be cool with it, like going on a sensibilities roller coaster. It was all about the WTF, the adrenaline. We saw The Doors, Clerks, Chasing Amy, Dogma, Natural Born Killers, The Usual Suspects, Pulp Fiction, Schindler's List, and Fight Club. I didn't feel, as I was supposed to, that that stuff was defiling me. In fact, when someone Christian expected me to wince every time someone near me said shit or to be superstitious about never, ever saying a word like that ourselves, my newly hardened and no longer princess and the P-grade conscience caused me to want them to simply grow up. I grew up shoveling shit out of the chicken coop and barn, and now I finally felt able to simply say that occasionally. I'd been to high school in the 80s and was a television and movie watcher in the 90s, and all of this pretending to be offended at everything regular people did and said seemed quaint and fake, not something I could imagine Jesus doing. I didn't do a lot of swearing myself, and I didn't get drunk or try pot or anything like that, but I felt like it was time to grow up, be real, be relevant, understand the real people in the real world we were really only pretending to be trying to reach with our gospel of legalism and squeamish priggishness. The 90s were also a time of speaking your mind plainly, with swearing if that helped you. In fact, there was a growing disdain for people who were careful to never quite say what they meant when they were saying stuff. Honesty and directness were reaching newer, higher standards, Civility and certainly formality and other excesses of daily language had to take a back seat as far as many were concerned. And political correctness and directness were in a kind of showdown. But at my church, there was an amazing lack of directness. No one would ever say they were angry or that someone had made them angry or anything like that. There was all this puppeting of God in the Bible, pretending it was really God who was upset and not they themselves. There was a pervasive atmosphere of passive-aggressive malice and nastiness. Whether it was young people hanging out chatting, or much more often old people enacting the latest division, it was a culture of talking about rather than to people, and having show conversations for an audience, putting people down in front of others to show dominance, not a lot of shooting from the hip, telling it like it is, or calling a spade a spade. Most of the conversations happened in code, in brethren jargon. I soon found that average people in bars wouldn't put up with that kind of crap. They expected people to speak more honestly. They wanted people's yay to be clearly heard to be yay, their nay to be a direct, plainly put nay, and they expected people's f*** off to be f*** off. They demanded that kind of candor. They'd push you to it. But we didn't roll like that growing up, so it was a struggle for me to adapt. 
A decade later, when I started to write my blog 15 years ago, I badly wanted a century of undiscussed, messed-up brethren upbringing stuff to finally be spoken about. Plainly, I wanted to expose what was hidden. I believed firmly that if one shone a light on what was dark, twisted, meaningless, dubious, and stupid, that people might well stop thinking, teaching, preaching, and behaving that way. I was, of course, an idealistic fool. To this day... Christians who will drink a beer with me while watching typical movies will say they don't understand how I can type the word shit on my blog. They will say the word occasionally themselves, but won't type it. It's a last vestigial superstition from people who will certainly communicate all manner of corrupt things, joke about all manner of sin, but who feel that a Christian doesn't say bad words. Not when anyone outside the Christian community is listening anyway. Not very 90s. Another thing about the 90s was that everything was open for mockery. From the 1980s forward, I had loved hearing Weird Al Yankovic on the Dr. Demento show do parody songs, making a mockery of whoever the radio was telling us was the coolest person ever and who was supposedly not at all weird. I loved Mad Magazine, The Simpsons, South Park, The Ben Stiller Show, Saturday Night Live, Mad TV, and all the rest. They were very, very close to my heart. We strode through a world of sarcasm and mockery. We feasted on it. We throve on it. But this wasn't my church culture at all. My brethren culture took everything deadly seriously. There was no joking around or smiling during meeting, not even at Sunday school. And one of the things that started to happen was that as I increasingly found things from my culture ridiculous, I would satirize them, exaggerate them, imitate them, parody them. I would try to make others see them the way I did, as silly. It was, of course, my parody of an unfortunately naively porn-sounding Sunday school paper called Wild Whipped Cream that was used as a pretense for kicking me out in the 90s. Here is the original pamphlet handed out to all of us in June of 1993. Messages of God's Love. Wild Whipped Cream. Beth was holding the pressurized can of whipped cream over the strawberry shortcake, pressing the valve on the top this way and that, but no cream would come out. Then I tried. Still no cream would come out. Dad had invited an important businessman for dinner, and Mom was away on a visit, so Beth and I had prepared the meal. So far, things had gone well, but now... We've got to get this stuff out of here, said Beth. You can't serve strawberry shortcake without whipped cream. I know it, I agreed. The minutes ticked off on the kitchen clock as we reshook the can and tried everything we could think of. Then I saw, around the base of the can, printed in large letters, the instructions, Do not puncture or incinerate this can. It says not to puncture this can, but what else can we do? I know there's whipped cream in there, and we have to get it out, now! The Bible has very definite instructions for you, too. It says, Go not in the way of evil men. Avoid it. Pass not by it. Turn away from it and pass away. Proverbs 4, verses 14 and 15. Are you obeying these instructions? They are from God. I hunted through the kitchen drawer and found a can opener with a pointed triangular end. As we both leaned over the can, I poked a hole in it. A second later, we were looking at each other in amazement. Our faces, hair, arms, and clothes were covered with whipped cream. Some of it had shot past us and landed on the wall behind us and even on the ceiling. 
Well, at least it's out of the can, I giggled. Now what do we do? Beth mumbled through her coating of whipped cream. Well, we've got to get some of it on that shortcake. I know that. Stand still. Beth obediently stood still as I scraped the whipped cream from her face and arms onto the dessert. Then she scraped whipped cream off of me. The shortcake looked pretty good. I'm afraid that we 90s young people found this outreach pamphlet a little bit hilarious. My parody of it, which I didn't intend anyone to see but a couple of close friends, was also called Wild Whipped Cream. Wild Whipped Cream. Beth was holding the pressurized can of whipped cream, pressing the nozzle on the top this way and that, but to no avail. No cream would come out. She held the can firmly between her firm thighs and pressed the tab with her long red-painted fingernails gasping with exertion. Beads of sweat glistened on her taut, sensuous body, and her full lower lip was held firmly in her even white teeth, wrinkles furrowing her cute little forehead. I tried too, cradling the can between my massive bicep and a swollen, pumped pectoral muscle until the veins stood out of my neck and looked near bursting. Boys and girls, have you ever spent hard-earned money on something that was supposed to be a whole lot of fun, but ended up being a real waste of time? The Bible contains many, many verses which tell us that things in the world are usually mind-wrenchingly, excruciatingly fun, but very naughty indeed. The Bible is full of many words, some of them delightfully naughty, nearly as many, in fact, as Webster's Dictionary. It is usually black, mine is pink, though, and about the same size as a large carton of filter-tipped menthol cigarettes. Most people have one, even Jack, who owns the beer store downtown. But how many do you think read theirs as regularly as they kill a six-pack of cold ones? The whole thing is out on video cassette, but most stores don't have it, so maybe you should just steal one the next time you stay in a motel. It is full of stories of blood, decapitation, violence, harlotry, war, disease, and other cool things. So you should probably keep it between your mattress and the wall. And in the early new millennium, when I saw my assembly heading for yet another division, without apparently having learned a thing about the works of the flesh versus the fruit of the spirit, I made a South Park-inspired cartoon called Divided We Stand, mocking said division in advance of it happening. The fact that it was imminent was explained in my cartoon by luminaries such as Eric Cartman and Commissioner Gordon Hayhoe from Batman the Animated Series. Carrots, you hit me right in the mouth, you dirty Baptist! Did not, you filthy liar! Did too, you dirty lying puncher! You're lying! You're lying! You'll be dealt with for this, Philip! We'll see a boot who gets dealt with, Terence, you spiritual lightweight! You're not a serious Christian, Philip! You're not a serious Christian, Terence! You're worldly, Philip! You're anal retentive, Terence. Hey, everybody, Philip's a filthy, dirty liar. Let's kick him out. Who's with me? Okay. Hey, everybody, Terence hit me. And he's a filthy, rotten liar. And is trying to start a division. Who's not a boot to let him get away with this? Yeah. I've a boot had enough of this, Terence. I'm leaving. No, Philip, I'm kicking you out. Don't NIV reading puppet kisser. No, I'm leaving. No, I'm kicking you out. Terence, I'm taking Christ with me. Philip, Christ's staying with us. You're a tyrant, Terence. You're worldly, Philip. You're following your own personal agenda, Terence. You're off scriptural ground, Philip. I'm very sorry, Philip, but... I'm kicking you out. The first action of the 40% left at Fellas Road Nepean was to send correspondents around the world, requiring each gathering to declare full support for their actions in kicking out the 60%. Dear Egypt, you see that we were 100% absolutely right in what we absolutely 100% had to do to that glue sniff 
friends. If you do, then you're cool. But if not, then you're a bunch of stick around there too. Bitch and love and cry. There can only be one Lord's table, of course, Philip. You're not it. I'm the table. I'm the table. I want to be the table. I'm a lovely table. Or perhaps a settee. My point wasn't that the division was evil or very, very serious, though I certainly thought it was. My point was something else, that it was very, very pointless and stupid, that it was, in fact, embarrassing and silly. That message offended a lot of people who liked their divisions taken deadly seriously. That cartoon got many thousands of views online. Many people laughed and said it was true. Others cried and said the same. Still others just hated me for making it. But I was always doing stuff like that. In retrospect, I think I was trying to wake people up, to make them see what I was seeing, to cause thought and discussion in a culture with precious little of that. My blog often had a sneering and sarcastic tone. People saw that as bitter, thought I should move on or not care about that stuff. I suppose the fiery denouncement of my culture could be described as bitter, but I don't really think that word's big enough. It wasn't just bitterness. It was full-out umbrage, indignation. It was hurt on behalf of not just me, but other people all around. And not just of past stuff, of present stuff, of stuff that was about to happen next, in fact. I was pissed off. I wanted things admitted, owned up to, repented of. I wanted the lying and pretense to stop. Ultimately, I was in denial about the simple fact that people would certainly continue to act in this way for the rest of my life. I thought they would change if they only knew, if I could only make them see. I had no idea. What changed was that I reached a point, finally, where I realized that the overwhelming answer from my church culture was only outwardly, What? No, you're making all that up. That's not happening. You're just focusing on the negative. I'd heard it, and heard it, and being a literal person believed they meant that, believed they weren't aware, thought if I could get people to accept reality, their behavior would change. I thought people were denying all the kickings out, the shunning, the social punishment and piety competitions because they somehow really hadn't noticed. To learn differently, I had to speak with people still trying to make my church culture work for them. Lots of them. Over decades, people who'd been my peers but in middle age were now holding positions of decision-making power, kicking out every one of their own kids, one after another, kicking out my parents, kicking out their own parents. I had to see that happen over and over throughout a couple of decades, and finally, I heard the message. We know. It's a choice. We're doing this on purpose. We're not delighted with it, but we're certainly not going to stop, admit anything, make amends, or change. So shut up about it. Who are you to judge us? Where have you been lately? You didn't put in the time. You haven't made the sacrifices. Go start your own table, or find one that suits you better instead of trashing ours. I was, and still am, expected to speak of the Tunbridge Wells Plymouth Brethren I grew up in, in the past tense, to say, I went there, that I was in fellowship, that I used to be brethren. Well, maybe I am Tunbridge Wells Plymouth Brethren, because that's my birth culture and upbringing. Maybe that's who I am still, for good or for ill, a bit. 
But Harold says, I'm not writing this book to tell anyone anything they don't already know. He says, I'm trying to get them to think about stuff they're already aware of, at least for a day or two, and to care, to decide it matters in the larger scheme of things, and to maybe think differently. Harold says that most Christians won't do that. It was a terribly harsh, sobering realization that mostly, I wasn't ever going to wake them up by writing blogs or books or anything. Because they were doing this with both eyes wide open. Generally, they weren't happy with the culture or how they were behaving, but they weren't stopping either. They weren't going to put anything right from the past. In fact, they were manifestly willing to continue doing all this to people for the rest of their lives, on behalf of dead people too, forever. They were knowingly, unswervingly unrepentant. That changed everything, quelled much of my ranting. I had to grow up pretty hard at that point. It lowered my faith in humanity immensely, but I finally realized that there was no point in trying to wake up the committedly legalistic, because they are committed to that path. So now, I'm just seeing who else is out there, who will be real, who isn't scared to think, and who will talk. And I'm much happier. Legalists are people too, though. One of the things I had to work through was what my attitude was to people who were repeatedly, relentlessly driving me away, spreading gossip about me and my friends, and warning would-be friends and girlfriends not to have anything to do with me, the people who worked to keep me friendless and single. It was very easy to be childish about it, to be mean-spirited, hard to act better than that, easy to sneer a whole lot. Sneering Nowadays, as a high school teacher, I daily experience the opposite angle on what I used to do, on what is a very adolescent approach to unwanted, untrusted authority, sneering and mocking. Very natural, also very childish. Thing is, being childish, sneery, and mocking about authority is the choice of a person with no power, with no say, no adult agency. It's the action of a child, of someone misbehaving from a lower position. Now, many people in many church cultures make adult congregants feel like children and don't give them any more say than children. But that's a game that you have to play along with or it won't work. In actual fact, a Christian group is a bunch of Christian adults and everyone gets say unless someone is willing to be seen acting like a tyrant, which hurts their position ultimately. You have to invite and hire and accept and maintain tyrants. We hire our Hitlers. As I said, in my 20s, which was when I finally got to have my adolescence, I was watching South Park and The Simpsons, loving Weird Al Yankovic's parodies of the songs the radio was telling us were cool, and basically getting very into anything that mocked things. Sometimes that satire is very insightful. Sometimes it's the child who says the emperor has no clothes. But it's the voice of a child, an adolescent at best. And when I was 23, I mocked the outreach pamphlet Wild Whipped Cream and it was beneath me to do so. Childish of me. As an educated adult man with a job and a place of his own who wanted to have things to say about the Bible and Christianity, I should have made my point to the authors and distributors of said hilariously ineptly titled tract seriously and moved on. Therefore, it was humiliating to have this tract brought out when I was almost 30 and have it used to kick me out of my birth culture, just as if I'd written it the week before rather than at the start of my twenties, as one last gasp of adolescent sneer leaking out. Embarrassing. 
I would far rather have been kicked out for having written a serious work, maybe a book. But I didn't write books then. I didn't even write blogs. I would have been terrified to. And I didn't have my thoughts together enough, was still getting my bearings and reeling from loss of culture shock. So I should have acted like a grown-up and written a serious letter, sincerely explaining my feelings about the publication. But I had no faith in the idea that anyone in our culture would ever listen to an unmarried person in his twenties. Unmarried people don't get to be adults in our brethren culture, really. I had no trust in our ability to see eye to eye either, Bible Truth Publishers and I. Didn't trust them to get it. Felt like they were really, really important as the TW's official propagandists. So I didn't act like an adult in that situation. I wrote a mocking parody, like a child walking in a clownishly exaggerated parody of a friend's gait, making fart sounds and saying, This is you. You walk like this. <coughs> Today, when I'm tempted to mock things I think are stupid, a daily occurrence usually, I try to remember that I don't have to mock stuff because I'm not a teenager. I'm not under the power of anyone I don't want to be for the most part. And I have a voice, a serious, informed one. Even if it's the government, if I take them seriously enough to want to laugh at them, I try to instead make my point in a serious way, one that I don't need to be embarrassed about later, in a way that's not juvenile. Laughing is something you can only do with like-minded people. If you write something serious, you're trying to be understood by everyone, not just your peebs. As I mentioned earlier in the book, I had to find out who it was that we brethren people certainly weren't allowed to criticize or mock and who we were encouraged to criticize and mock. I found that who punished us and what we got punished for really put paid to the idea that there were no power-wielding leaders among the TW brethren. We weren't willing to admit to having them, but we got punished for joking about them all the same. Why is it so tempting to mock, though? In a letter to his friend Jerome Weller in Wittenberg in 1530, even Martin Luther advised it as a way of dealing with situations when Weller felt the devil was trying to tie his mind all up in logistical knots. Luther wrote, In this sort of temptation and battle, contempt is the easiest road to victory. Laugh your enemy to scorn. I don't know. Why mock other human beings? Well, when people are playing the role of someone with power, they really need you to play along. They need you to fear them. They need you to need them, to be under them, to stand to suffer if they aren't happy. And above all, they need you to take them very, very seriously. When you laugh in the face of that, it disarms them. It makes them need to get meaner and scarier and more powerful still until you start feeling their authority and stop laughing. It becomes a bit of an arms race. I'm not a parent, but I guess I know about this because I'm a teacher. If I'm trying to be authoritative and a kid is determined to laugh at me, that's a real battle. A cat may laugh at a king, and the kid is probably going to win that showdown if he just keeps laughing. And I'd get fired if I laughed out loud every time a kid did or said something childish or stupid. I'm simply not allowed to be as scary as a kid is allowed to be derisive and disrespectful. If he goes overboard, he might need to stay home for a couple of days. If I go overboard, I get to go home until I find a new career. So, if I show signs that I know I'm just playing a teacher role, but I'm going to play it, that I don't take myself terribly seriously, and him or her even less so, this tends to break that laughing cycle. At the very least, if I'm supposed to be playing scary and authoritative, and the kid is doing a fantastic job of uncaringly sneering and laughing, 
if I can smirk at his or her immaturity instead of getting frantically serious? That's a power move. But it's nasty. Doesn't mean I won't resort to it when I need to. When a kid is laughing at you and you laugh right back and still punish them, they're not sure what to do about that. It seems psycho. One of the nastiest things that the men from my assembly did when summoned to shepherd me was smile while wielding their authority like sharks, was scoff at my request to get back in, was literally laugh quietly at the very idea of me being back in, because of who, they said, I knew I was. That was power. But I don't want to be like that, because at the time I certainly thought those church elders were dickweeds, so I don't want to follow their dickish example. I'd like to do better, and I'd far rather say, or type, the word dickweed than act like one in how I treat someone else, though I certainly have done that in the past. When I finally wrote, like an adult, and apologized to Bible Truth Publishers for childishly mocking their pamphlet five years previous, it was embarrassing, put me very much in their hands, and they were very, very good about it, said they weren't offended, though God certainly was, of course, said the incident was over, as far as they were concerned, though not as God was concerned, of course, quoted some nice verses to me. And, when I apologized sincerely to the local brethren people other than the elders, they all took that very well, and the apologizing strengthened the bond between us, and reminded us that we liked one another. More than just apologize, giving a prepared statement, I also asked to be forgiven. That put the power entirely in their hands. And most people told me there was nothing that needed to be forgiven. They hadn't known I'd done anything at all, and it didn't matter. So of course I was forgiven. I had to phone around to every single family personally to get this response, but I did it, because I was told I could not know who had the grievance, so I called everyone. And then I knew what the assembly felt, whatever the registered letter said their decision, which they all found out about after I did, was. Phoning around was very much worth it, and it showed me who the men holding the grudge were, apart from the elders, Carl and Gilbert the only two men who withheld forgiveness, grace, and mercy. Two men who split from the two elders who kicked me out just over three years later. To this day, 22 years after I wrote that pamphlet, there are four men in two different, completely unaffiliated brethren groups who hold this against me. They're in their 70s now. They won't accept an apology and won't forgive me, saying that God would have to forgive me first. Clearly, they do not believe in a God who could ever do that, given the gravity of my sin. They clearly do not believe that I, that anyone, could ever be ashamed enough, given the aforementioned gravity of said sin, in mocking the Lord himself, in blasphemy, sacrilege. These are men who have refused to answer emails and who hung up on me back in the day when I phoned to apologize. These men say, It is evident that you are insufficiently repentant and broken in spirit. I have a recent email to that effect from one of these men who broke radio silence only when, after not answering several of my emails asking if I could attend a Sunday morning meeting in his living room, needed to respond when I said I was making it an official request of all three brothers in that mini-assembly. He didn't want to ignore an official request to the assembly, nor speak for them. And one of the three was my father. So I was able to attend and sit back at the back of the living room and not take communion with them because they meet in a living room Sunday morning. 
They will never forgive nor be forgiven by their peers, it doesn't look like. There's plenty of grudges to go around. I'd be judgmental, but I really don't think they know better. In the last bitter spat, Carl and Gilbert, the two guys with the grudge, not Dwight and Wim, the two guys who visited me and kicked me out, kept the church building in my Divided We Stand cartoon. Carl and Gilbert may have kept the building in the divorce, but they lost the war. Almost everyone moved across town when instructed to. Carl and Gilbert's strategy had been to kick out Dwight and Wim, the guys who were doing all the kicking out. Put another way, the two with the grudge against me wanted to kick out their enforcers, the guys they'd got to kick me and so many others out, because Wim and Dwight were kicking out their friend David rather than just rabble like me and my friends. But Wim and Dwight won the bid to have the whole TW Brethren world bow to their assembly decision to kick Carl and Gilbert and their friend David out of the movement. Letters came back, opting to stay neutral and support the announcement that Carl, Gilbert, and David and the meeting hall were out, and ignore the other letter that announced that Dwight and Wim were out. So, Carl and David kept having meeting in the old hall, while Wim and Dwight announced that anyone who showed up at the old hall was out. They moved the whole assembly across town to a facility they'd rather suspiciously prepared a month in advance of this whole debacle and they kicked out every single person who showed up at the old hall for meeting. And the TW movement worldwide backed that too, naturally. I went out Sunday morning to the old meeting hall afterward to see what it was like. Over 60 chairs still set up. Twelve people there, though, including me. The behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity text still up there on the wall. The front face of the building still proclaiming on the one side that God is love, and on the other that he is light. But the twelve didn't last very long. It's closed nowadays. No one sings hymns in there. No one worships God and decides who gets to worship with them and who has to sit in the back. No new babies are brought out Sunday morning there. No one gets sent home to eat lunch by himself on Sunday because there's a fellowship lunch and people under discipline have to leave. Grass grows up through cracks in the asphalt of the parking lot I used to park my old cars in when I was a member. The iron gates are padlocked with a chain across them. No one is ever getting back in to worship in there. The guys who kept that hall meet in Gilbert's living room now, when they meet at all. As I said, Gilbert judges that I am not sufficiently repentant to break bread in that living room, and my father can't break bread there anymore either because they had a further division in 2013. It's what they do, I guess. Carl, Gilbert, and David supported the decision to kick out an old guy named Henry Short in Illinois because he wrote scandalous stuff like this. Both the table and the supper are the Lord's. Scripture does not speak of our receiving to or putting away from either. Both are his. His discipline will be upon us for carelessness or sin. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep, 1 Corinthians 11 and 30. This is not assembly discipline. It is done by God himself. Some brethren were outraged by Henry Short's suggestion that we human beings do not actually have the divine authority to kick people out or from the Lord's table itself, but only from among ourselves. So they had another division over the authority to kick people out thing. Yay! I don't have to hate any of these old warring brethren guys to decide I really don't want to be like them. 
And what's a good attitude to the whole situation? I know what a bad attitude would be. Triumph, satisfaction, jubilation, feeling vindicated like God zapped them for me and now their whole toy box has been dumped out and their dolls stomped on. And being delighted, that would be a horrible attitude to have. I think a good attitude would be to feel sad. Not just to claim that what happened is sad, because we know what that means in Brethrenese, but to actually feel sad. So I look inside myself for that, and yes, it's there. That parking lot grass blowing in the wind is sad. The locked iron gates, the chains, the rust, the silence, the shattered families, it is sad. I had some good times in there, and there were Christians doing Christian stuff for generations. There were handshakes, food, a cappella, songs, and pretty long-haired girls in pretty dresses with their pretty heads covered. But now it's all torn to pieces, and some might cite other causes, but I'm going to decide it was legalism that tore that place down around our ears. Our legalism. Fighting over who looks worldly, who is right about the Bible, not knowing how to treat people, though. The flesh in action, building that tower of doctrine to heaven. Legalism, which is always surrounded by the other works of the flesh it is a sister strategy to. But back when I was first old enough to drive cars to that parking lot, I was trying to grow up to one day become the biggest legalist there ever was. So I get it. I have no right to sneer about any of it. And on a good day, I'm too grown up. Pride. It's all too easy to succumb to pride about my legalists, to look at the shattered relationships they have with their kids and spouses, how many of their kids have truly messed up lives now, and how very few of those meeting-raised kids are in any way associated with the church culture or even believe in God today, how many people's kids don't really get along with them at all, how few new people are coming out to any meeting activities, as far as I know, how few people show up Sunday generally in most of these assemblies, the ones that remain. Thing is, I didn't move away. I teach high school English locally. I go to churches sometimes. I see the children and grandchildren of the local folks I used to go to meeting with every single day of my life. The grandchildren of the main elder behind the Nepean divisions go to the high school where I work. I teach the children of people of whose assemblies I am no longer a member. I help some of them write things, not parody pamphlets, of course, and I affix a numeric value on their writing. I teach them what irony, satire, and parody are, and what they're for. Most are great kids at new churches with no idea what their parents, grandparents, and I went through together. I wouldn't know how to tell them what we all did to one another. And it would make me bashful to show up at their church like some wild man of the woods, feral and shaggy and weird, and their teacher. It's hard to know how to feel about myself. To most local evangelical church people, I'm a victim. A bitter casualty of cultist churches which shouldn't even be allowed to open their doors on Sundays. To others, I'm a threat to church bliss, being negative instead of uplifting, an SH disturber, tearing down the Lord's people, a grievous wolf. To others, I'm an obsessive who needs to drop it. So there's quite a range of options for self-image available to me. In a school, I'm a licensed professional teacher who cares about grammar and can tell you how to use a semicolon and make you write more like an adult. In the assemblies of my own brethren culture, when I come in the door, it's more complicated. 
To many, I am the crazy man on the Internet, the foul, depraved, Aleister Crowley Charles Manson figure, or the Michael Bowling for Columbine Moore figure, making anti-status quo stuff that people feel threatened by, but helplessly know their kids have seen on the Internet. Yet I'm also missed. Some people kind of wish I'd feel and think and act differently, perhaps, but they're also kind of glad to see me, especially if I'm only passing through. And sometimes... They really sort of asked me to forgive them for their choosing to support the decision to never let me be a member again. Because they're always going to support it. They miss me, but they're never going to take communion with me or invite me to any meetings. And what does a good attitude to this situation look like? I think I know what a bad attitude looks like. Pride. I'm better than they are. They're legalists, and I'm normal. They're under the influence of a cult, and I've been deprogrammed. They're in bondage to human traditions and superstitions and bureaucratic control mechanisms, and I'm free. They're ignorant, and I'm informed. Pride. Ugly and weak. I think I'll try to feel the fact that I'm missed, and that I miss them in return. I think I'll meet people for coffee. I think I will occasionally show up of a Sunday at some of the various bits of assembly shrapnel which resulted from our meeting culture exploding. And I think every time I realize that I feel better than people, I will not feel ashamed, that doesn't fix anything, but will also not take myself seriously enough to support the pride. I will see how childish and silly it is to want to feel proud about anything in this situation. How laughable. What did we mess up? Love. Relationships. Connecting. Relating. And it's not too late for those. I think, church or not, you have to do relationships on a person-to-person basis. Even in a family, you can't just love all your kids at the same time. You have to deal with each one. So that's how I'm going to have to deal with Christians. Church affiliation doesn't figure into that any way I can see. And we're all messed up. Because we're people. Human beings. No better, no worse. So we have to let each other know it's okay for others to reveal that sometimes they're messed up. We all are. All the time. And the pride that says it's my job to fix them all and correct their thoughts or speech like I correct their kids' punctuation is ridiculous, something I should never believe. The message of Divided We Stand was, these divisions, this fighting, is silly and needless. And I stand behind that today. And the Bible tells us what would have prevented it. Love. The fruit of the Spirit. Recognizing the works of the flesh for what they are and judging them. You can't cure the works of the flesh with only your natural capacities, your flesh. But you can stop taking yourself so seriously. Stop feeling righteous when you're doing the works of the flesh. You can start feeling that you need God. It would be utterly pointless and self-deluding to create yet another position or view purporting to tell which side was right or that both sides were wrong and only I was right. Another one of those we're right things simply doesn't need to be made. Bruce Anstey, Paul Christianese, and others have that well and truly covered. Despite the clear South Park inspiration of my cartoon, I was trying to do South Park at its least adolescent and childish. South Park, when the piano music starts and Kyle makes a valid clear point. You know, Stan, we learned something today. And my point about our apparent inability to love one another properly, about our fighting, our need to control, our prideful needing to be right, was that it was all so transparent that anyone looking on from a small distance could see it, that people did see it, and that it was embarrassing and silly. Because it just is, especially every single time we do it again. And we do keep doing it again. On the personal level, 
and from time to time globally. We'd rather divide than connect, rather diss Bruce Anstey than try to see eye to eye with him. Some people get very angry with me and everything I write and my cartoon and all of it. And that's the response that tempts me to feel pride, because one assumes that those people feel like their sacred cows are being pointed out as idols. Like I am trying to make something heroic and terribly serious and important, like meeting divisions and deciding who is right, even if it tears us all to pieces, seem needless and silly. Because I was, and I am, and I'm tempted to feel proud about getting to them. But I don't want to be that person either. So I guess, with this book, as with that cartoon, I'll shoot for We're Ridiculous, and It Was All Very Needless and Sad What We Did. Let's stop doing stuff like that. We messed up love and tolerance and relationships, failed to show the fruit of the Spirit in any way sufficient to keep us from instead displaying the least fun works of the flesh. It's just something we did in those embarrassing decades. None of us was able to stop it. And inside us still, we are very tempted to want to control and correct everything supposedly Christ-related anywhere near us. We want to form sides like the game we are playing is football or war. But the game we are to be playing is relationship, and we Christian groups have the most embarrassing divorces of all. We have nothing to be proud of. We need to stop claiming to be in some especially scriptural, elevated ecclesiastical position. I don't expect many to see the effort I put into gathering the quotes and writing this book and putting it out there and putting up with the flack from it to be an act of love, love for my people, love for my God. But try to think of it that way for just a moment. Envy. Pride isn't the only deadly sin that beckons to survivors of legalistic systems. I know what it's like to go to a Bible conference that I wasn't supposed to go to and hear sermons given which sound quite self-satisfied and complacent to me, to have people walk up and advise me to talk to elders who haven't returned a call or any correspondence since the 20th century. I know what it is to be single and childless and see all the happy families and pregnant ladies. I know what it's like to see guys my age speaking and running their assemblies and being called Mr. by younger people and having their sermons put in the net as MP3s and generally get spoken of with respect. I know what it's like to have to leave because it's supper time and I was told I wasn't welcome to eat there. And what does a good attitude to this situation look like? I think I know what a bad attitude looks like. Envy, resentment, feeling like a victim. I think the answer there is just not meeting up with them on their own turf anymore. It's back to basics. Seeing who will agree to meet me somewhere else for coffee. It's seeing who will text or chat or Facebook or whatever. Seeing what connections can be forged on a person-to-person level. I can't worship with you? Can I buy you dinner? Are you doing okay? What's going on for you this week? And really, there is no better revenge on people who seem to have been willing to destroy one's ecclesiastical life than to live well to find satisfaction and enjoyment in Christian things, in everything. I've seen resentful people who've been kicked out of a brethren culture who then lose their grip on hope, trust God, the Bible, and everything, who never go to other churches to see what's going on in them, who lie down and take victimhood and whine about it and need to be told to shut up all the time, who never look inside themselves and see the same correct and control they suffered under in their itching to be applied to others. I think playing the victim is a form of envy, just as shame is disappointed pride. And I am accused of playing the victim every time I even try to talk with anyone or publish anyone's thoughts or feelings about the other side of brethren culture. And every time someone wants me to shut up, 
They can just accuse me of that and call me bitter, negative. And I think it's very important not to actually be those things in the eyes of God. And some days, that's a bit beyond me. I guess what's worked, when it's worked, is to look for success elsewhere, to stop believing that God needs some church culture or other if he wants to bless me or use me, to move on from the conviction that God wouldn't or couldn't make me thrive except within a church culture, to learn that if a church kicked me out or doesn't want to include me today, this doesn't interfere with God blessing me, that the whole debacle was, in fact, a blessing in itself. It put me into shock, being torn up by the cultural roots and tossed to one side like that. But my life wasn't over, even if I didn't recreate my brethren culture by joining or starting a replacement version of it. Briefly put, if I get things from God and notice them and am grateful, I won't be plagued by envy or feelings of victimhood, exclusion, or loss. Same thing if I can help in any way, shed any light, provide any comfort. I'll have stuff going on. So that's what I want. Enemies This book is about how, in the Bible, Jesus seems to be constantly attacking the legalists of his time, the Pharisees, over and over and over, by name. But I don't think he was really attacking them, not as people. I think it only looks like that. I think he wanted to make very sure that his own message wasn't mixed in with or confused for theirs. Because his message was pure. Theirs, like ours, was just human. His was the opposite to theirs. His was about inner transformation from God. Theirs was about the outer appearance of piety. The two are incompatible. They are at odds. Either you focus on letting God align your inner self to match his, or you focus on maintaining the appearance and reputation of piety yourself through religion. We aren't Jesus. Even if we're quoting him directly, we are just human beings. We have agendas other than his tainting what we're doing, agendas of correction and control. In many ways, we are copies of copies of copies of Christians long dead rather than conduits for the living Christ. Were legalists my enemies? Are they still? I think they took on that role from time to time. I think when they spied on me and my friends and tarnished our reputations and spread lies and warned people not to associate with or date us and then eventually informed the culture globally that we were to be barred from all meeting activities, they took on the role of enemies. They messed up my life as best they could. But I think now a lot of it is up to me. Today, I can view them how I like. And I don't see the point in viewing them as enemies. Every time I talk to a brethren person my age who says he or she misses me and would love me to visit some weekend, I ask if I would, under any circumstances, be allowed to break bread on Sunday morning with them, when we, of course, go to meeting. Because they always go to meeting. Many of them run their assemblies. And it kind of turns over that old rock. And there's still stuff squirming around wetly under there. I can see the squirming in their body language and gaze. The wobble in their voice. What has happened every single time is they've gotten very blushy and awkward. They told me no, that I know that, and that it's not up to them, even if the meeting is in their living room and there's no one there but their own family, that it's not their fault, that there's nothing they can do, that they're obligated to exclude me from answering the Lord's dying request. I think at that point, it's up to me to view them as enemies or victims. So I view them as victims, trapped in something, 
obligated to something, something I really understand, something that has roots twisting all through them just like it did me, something designed to control people, something God intervened in to keep me from growing up to enforce myself one day. Problem with that is it's hard not to be tempted to feel superior, to feel freer, to feel able to follow my own convictions. But I think it's important not to view them as enemies, even if they PM me on Facebook to tell me everything that's wrong with me, even if they warn Christians not to talk to me, even if they sometimes still interfere in my life and the lives of people I care about, the Bible is pretty unflinching as to how to treat enemies. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had this to say on the subject. Now that is the final reason I think that Jesus says love your enemies. It is this, that love has within it a redemptive power. And that is a power there that eventually transforms individuals. That's why Jesus says love your enemies, because if you hate your enemies, you have no way to redeem and to transform your enemies. But if you love your enemies, you will discover that at the very root of love is the power of redemption. You just keep loving people and keep loving them, even though they are mistreating you. Here's a person who is a neighbor, and this person is doing something wrong to you, and all of that. Just keep being friendly to that person. Keep loving them. Don't do anything to embarrass them. Just keep loving them, and they can't stand it too long. Oh, they react in many ways in the beginning. They react with bitterness because they're mad because you love them like that. They react with guilt feelings, and sometimes they'll hate you a little more at that transition period. But just keep loving them. And by the power of your love, they will break down under the load. That's love, you see. It is redemptive. And this is why Jesus says love. There's something about love that builds up. And it's creative that there's something about hate that tears down and is destructive. So love your enemies. Love is the cure for legalism and legalists, both being them and dealing with them. It's redemptive. It's how God's redemption works in us. Loving you and loving them as God loves all of us. And this is really important. Loving your enemies isn't a human thing. It's beyond us. It's a Christian thing, in the literal sense of the word. It is inspired by Christ. It is the fruit of the Holy Spirit working in us. So it's something we should aspire to, if we want to ever tell anyone we're Christians. But we won't get to it by rules or vows. It's not enough to be good church people fitting that Christian image. We have to be transformed in the image of Christ, inwardly. And we don't do that to ourselves. governmental pressure to appear charitable. It's not just Christians who know that the Bible tells us repeatedly and that Jesus came to earth in person and told people more than once to love people and help them. Everyone knows we're supposed to do that. Interestingly, changes have been forced upon the Taylor Hales brethren recently as to their love claims in particular. The group has a huge amount of money worldwide, and they maintain it partially by dodging taxes and exploiting separate school and church tax loopholes as a charitable organization. 
they engage monthly in such things as passing gym bags of money from country to country in a huge international game of illegal ecclesiastical hot potato using elders who are willing to smuggle the funds between various countries. They do things with the money collected by their separate schools that have gotten the concerned attention of governments. It is no coincidence that the exclusives ban on post-secondary education has a loophole. It's okay if one wishes to study business and finance-related things at the post-secondary level. Governments are trying to get some kind of a grip on financial irregularities among churches, communes, and cults in general. And in England, the government decided to look more closely into religious groups claiming tax exemptions on the basis of being charitable organizations. Governments are asking a question for the first time. Is a religious group automatically charitable? Or does it have to actually do helpful stuff for people in order to be called that? Charity, love stuff, feeding and clothing the poor and needy. Starting in the 1970s, the British government began changing the law as to what constituted a charitable organization. The Taylor Hales exclusives in the UK claim charity status, but would not so much as eat with or allow into their church buildings anyone who was not an obedient member in good standing. They have locked iron gates, no windows, and bouncers. They won't even share sewer pipes with neighboring buildings in the name of Christian separation from this world. But they kept ahead of legal problems over tax-exempt status until recently. In 2012, due to pressure from the British Charity Commission, the whole group found itself in an interesting position. It suddenly had to legally, publicly prove that it in any way benefited anyone needy in a charitable way in order to regain its rescinded tax-exempt status. So in 2012, the Taylor Hales Brethren hired Jackson Wells, a public relations firm specializing in spin doctoring and image makeovers. Jackson Wells works for the Church of Scientology in that precise capacity as well. They are perhaps the most prestigious public relations firm in the world. They do not come cheap. Following the recommendations of Jackson Wells, the Taylor Hills Group has recently gotten a very sudden, dramatic, multi-million dollar global makeover. First, when asked, what church are you guys? They move from the traditional brethren, well, we're not a church, and we don't take to ourselves any name but Christ. We're just a small group of believers gathered by the Holy Spirit to the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ to honor his dying request to remember him under the leadership of our anointed man of God on earth, Bruce Hales, to simply, G'day! We are the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church. Trademarked. The Plymouth Brethren Christian Church. And they put up a website and everything, though their members aren't to surf the internet. And they did a whole bunch of photo shoots of them giving money or food to various people, though of course they're not allowed to eat with those people themselves. And they had a closed open house of sorts as to their buildings, which open house they held in their church parking lot under tents. And they lobbied members of parliament for whom their religion forbids them to vote until MPs complained of harassment. Now they're in trouble for showing clear affiliation with the conservative political parties when charitable organizations are required to be nonpartisan and not motivated by the advancement of any political party or personal agenda. As I wrote before, their prayer meetings worldwide this week are praying that the Almighty weaken unions in Ontario, where I work for the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Union, which does its best to keep class sizes well below 40 students.
Though the Taylor Hills brethren are mainly based in Australia and New Zealand, the focus of all of this loving church image doctoring was in the UK, where their money was most threatened by the government there. And the more threatened they felt by the government, the more they got involved in donating huge sums to political parties and in pamphleting liberal neighborhoods with conservative flyers and so on. But they are currently under a lot of scrutiny because they have a reputation in the media for being unloving, for splitting up families, for giving misinformation about times and places where funerals are being held to thwart the efforts of bereaved family members who are trying to attend, for example, in the case of Craig Hoyles, their own mother's funeral. News shows have done numerous specials dealing exclusively with the Taylor Hales Brethren and their cultish interference in families. They've been in the magazines and newspapers a great deal lately. After all, governments really don't want to give cults tax-exempt status. Cults aren't so much charitable organizations as they are ways for a guy to get his hands on the money and earning potential of every member he can attract. So the Taylors are paying world-class money to get a world-class reputation for being loving. Love matters, even to tax people who just happen to know what the word charity means. And I don't think it's easy to fool anyone where love is concerned. People know what love is. Here is an excerpt from the PBCC's new website explaining their Christian values to people who may browse it. We choose to follow the teachings of Jesus as set out in the Gospels and taught in the epistles of the New Testament. Refer to passages such as Matthew 16:24-26, Mark 10:28-30, 2 Timothy 2:19, and 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 14 to 18. Separation represents a moral distinction between what is right and what is wrong, what is righteous and what is unrighteous. Christians, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, are exhorted to refuse the evil and to choose the good. Isaiah 7.15 We make a commitment to eat and drink only with those with whom we would celebrate the Lord's Supper. That is the basis of our fellowship. And, as we know, they won't even celebrate the Lord's Supper or eat or drink in the same room as even the strictest of Plymouth Brethren people if they are not currently fit to be members of the PBCC in full standing. A Scriptural Obligation to Love We need to love. According to the Scripture, we're not just to show tolerance to different people, but to actually love them, even our enemies, even Hitler or Osama bin Laden or ISIS, even politicians or political parties we don't like. And we won't get loving by using a human system, not through vows and willpower, not through study, but by opening up ourselves and waiting for something from God. Transformation, inspiration, alignment with and by Him because it's all too easy to view the church leaders who target us and our families as if they were thugs or evil masterminds. And they're not. Legalists are people. Most of them are people doing more or less what they think they should, more or less the best they can. And if you find that depressing, really take in the idea that human beings doing more or less what they think we should, more or less the best we can, need Jesus that much. We do. Doing our best often still results in us f***ing other people over and causing a huge mess. Of course, we should know better, but oftentimes we don't. We get swept along. We stop paying enough attention. We get bored or distracted or cranky. We lose our heads. We're not enough. But there is hope. Who would the patron saint of recovering legalists be? 
St. Paul, without a doubt. Ruth says, I think we tend to get the glamorous ideal of the dramatic conversion from Saul on the road to Damascus, but Saul wasn't a womanizer and drunkard and gambler saved in the gutter. He was a very Pharisee of the Pharisees, blameless with regard to the law, knew the scriptures backwards and forwards. He was so zealous for God and for Holy Scripture that he persecuted the very body of Christ, thinking he did God's will. Sound familiar? I believe God had been trying to get his attention for some time before that dramatic conversion, and Saul just wasn't listening. I also believe that his conversion was more of a process than an event, and wasn't complete until he had fasted and prayed in darkness for three days, and Ananias prayed with him. But if God could save Saul of Tarsus and turn him around, how much hope there is for the rest of us recovering Pharisees. And Paul, once so vindictively about law and the rules, transformed into the person who had more to say about grace than any other writer in the whole Bible. The Everyday Ordinary Nature of Legalism I learned recently about Jewish philosopher Hannah Arendt. Hearing that Adolf Eichmann, a key figure in organizing and overseeing the extermination of millions of Jews during the Holocaust, was on trial in Israel in the 1960s, she traveled to see the trial, and she got to meet him. Of course, like anyone might, she expected to meet a sneering, cruel, insane Nazi man who seemed evil, like in a cartoon or horror movie. She expected a smirking, smug, cold genius. She expected a psychopath with clear psychological problems. And the man she met was a quiet, sensible, boring, blank little pencil pusher, a desk jockey, middle management, not particularly intelligent or educated, someone who followed the rules, did what he was told he must do, avoided thinking about or listening to anything that might tempt him to question what we are doing, we being the Third Reich. Hannah Arendt found Adolf Eichmann not so much terribly stupid as simply unthinking, He had been part of an atrocity we're still talking about today, yet in the 20 years since it had happened, he simply hadn't thought much about it. At all. Hadn't come to any conclusions. Hadn't tried to learn anything. Had looked to just live his life, be happy, and move on, carefully avoiding any lessons that might have presented themselves. When on trial, Eichmann spoke almost entirely in clichés, in jargon, and in quoting the words of his superiors, groupthink and groupspeak. He excused every single horrific genocidal thing he'd made possible and supervised by saying he was an ordinary person who did his duty. He felt like, if he was being asked to take responsibility for executing human beings, all he had to do was report that he'd been expected to do that by someone else, and it was no longer his fault. He was simply bowing to Adolf Hitler's decisions. His whole life, he'd been unable to function as an individual person. He'd always and only been a joiner of things and someone who had trouble thinking for himself, objected to being asked to, in fact, sought to excuse himself from that. His biggest problem with the Second World War being over was that now he no longer knew what group to follow along with. He could no longer find success as a Nazi, so what was he to be? what career path was best. He needed to belong to something that told him who he was and what his role should be. Six psychiatrists checked him out and decided that Eichmann was very, very sane, boringly so, and exhibited no emotional or mental problems whatsoever. 
In fact, he was a very ordinary, simple person. Extraordinarily ordinary, not remotely complex, no childhood trauma, nothing really to comment on besides a normal, unsociopathic lack of empathy, more of a lazy unwillingness to bother worrying about others rather than a clinical inability to view them as humans. In Christian terms, Eichmann was not extraordinarily sinful inside. He was just a run-of-the-mill follower. Interesting to contrast him with the Jesus presented in the Gospels. Eichmann didn't love his job, though he felt much better belonging to something. He was just someone who had ways to make sure he never really contemplated the real horrors of what he was helping organize on a daily basis. Just didn't think about bulldozers shoving heaps of emaciated, naked, bald corpses into pits. About sealing high heaps of dolls taken out of the hands of children who would never need them again and would never live to outgrow them. All this going along was a coping mechanism, and it made him very able to fit in and function and get along in the regime he lived under. Control-based regimes require followers and are threatened by thinkers. And followers have trouble following if they think too much. After publishing The Banality of Evil, Hannah Arendt faced a vicious backlash from the Jewish community, who were asserting that Nazis were clearly especially evil, clinically psychopathic, inhuman beings. The Jewish leaders were insisting upon being anti-Germanic, bigoted, xenophobic. But Hannah Arendt's view was that Germans were typical human beings, that the possibility for evil exists everywhere and in everyone, and that we choose how evil to be by how unthinking and uncaring about others we choose to be, how unloving, how controlling, on a daily basis. She talks about those choices, writing, Under conditions of terror, most people will comply but some people will not. Just as the lesson of the countries to which the final solution was proposed is that it could happen in most places, but it did not happen everywhere. Humanly speaking, no more is required, and no more can reasonably be asked for this planet to remain a place fit for human habitation. Controversially, Arendt believed that the Holocaust really could have happened anywhere in the world, but that it had happened in Europe under the Nazi party. Just like, there had to be a Judas figure in the Jesus story, but woe betide Judas Iscariot for letting it be him. Now, my church group wasn't the Nazi party exterminating Jews. It also wasn't Rwanda in 1992, with two factions of Africans fighting to exterminate one another and leaving heaps of machete-hewn corpses strewn across the countryside. But learning about those things has helped me understand how exactly the authors and architects of our silly, spiteful little divisions could hurt so many people. About how afterwards so many Christians who I know to be genuine human beings can be induced to forever go along with shunning and otherwise sidelining and socially sanctioning innocent people for the rest of their lives. I've spoken with so many of them. They often live far away. They feel they are being neutral to uphold decisions to leave people like me forever in a position of ecclesiastical banishment, neutrally helping punish us for the rest of our lives, turning us away from taking communion or hanging out no matter what part of the world we're in. Bishop Desmond Tutu famously said, If you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. If an elephant has its foot on the tail of a mouse and you say that you are neutral, the mouse will not appreciate your neutrality. My proofreader Mark wrote in his proof copy, The Elephant Might. 
Like Eichmann, people being neutral to people like my family, friends, and me always make sure they don't know any more than they need to in order to excuse themselves from responsibility. And as to the things they do know, they make sure they don't think about much of it or draw any conclusions or realize anything that might lead to repentance or change. They make sure not to connect those dots. They move on. They live their life. In fact, in talking to people under the power of, while personally wielding the power to enforce legalistic systems, I have consistently seen two things. Number one, they are instantly threatened by any thorough discussion of much of anything, especially the past. It's in their eyes. Fear keeps them from thinking, doing, or feeling any number of things that would drive them to risk their reputations, status, and say by connecting those aforementioned dots. Fear drives the mental gymnastics required for them to not have to change. It keeps them from speaking with their own words. It keeps them from being anything like themselves. It pushes them to need to censor, control, and correct all manner of people and things. Number two, they do not take personal responsibility for much of anything, no matter how central and integral their role in their church culture is. It's always that someone else or the system itself is making them do things they don't really want to do. Censoring, controlling, and correcting things normally. Often it's their victims who leave them no choice in the matter. They're being bad people for the good of others. They're hurting innocent, everyday people because they themselves are dutiful people. They are doing dubious things to keep the system together because we need the system, right? Just as much as it needs us. After all, you can't make an omelet without occasionally drowning some infants. To watch the mental gymnastics involved in all of this fearful dodging of personal responsibility is quite something. I have frequently spoken to the one person who is inarguably the power in a tiny, tiny legalistic group and seen this happen. I've seen it when talking to abusive husbands and parents. As one makes inarguable, simple statements of fact regarding concrete, universally known events, immediately the squirming and wriggling start. I've seen their eyes beseech me not to make them think. They admit that we both know, but not to make them discuss who they are and what they're doing, that it's cruel to bring up the cruelty that's going on. I've seen an unspoken appeal for pity and forgiveness in so many eyes, and usually anger that someone is making them think about who they are and what they're doing when it's not their fault, when they're not free and are as much the victims as anyone they're personally hurting. They're being made to hurt them, to drive people away, to divide families and friends, to terrorize their wife. They're just doing what's expected of them, what they have to do, by a thing that Scripture does not instruct us to construct in the first place, by a thing that people who are connected to Christ have no need of. But it's hard to think about stuff, especially when one is scared and is serving a thing. Easier to just do what's expected. Hannah Arendt points out that Under conditions of tyranny, it is far easier to act than to think. Arendt also notes how people who are serving a controlling system don't even speak with their own words. What's coming out of their mouth isn't self-expression at all. She writes, Clichés, stock phrases, adherence to a conventional, standardized codes of expression and conduct have the socially recognized function of protecting us against reality. A much less academic-sounding source this reminds me of is Pink Floyd's brain damage from their seminal Dark Side of the Moon album. On the subject of letting other people adjust your thinking until you conform to a system, Roger Waters wrote the following... 
lunatics in my head The lunatic is in my head You raise the blade You make the change You rearrange me till I'm sane You lock the door Throw away the key There's someone in my head But it's not me And if the cloud burst Thunder in your ear You shout and no one seems to hear And if the band you're in Starts playing Arendt's work makes one notice how much focus on victims there is in situations that involve abuses of power. Though this seems perfectly natural, it is also very clear that something else is being passed over. What kinds of people are these leaders deep down? What are their weaknesses and vices? What drove them to create victims? Leaders tend, upon taking power, to be judged on their persona, their charm, and how nice they make us feel, and how impressed we can be with them. But eventually, as in the case of a U.S. president in the closing months of his second term, one starts to want to talk about what exactly he did and did not manage to accomplish any mess he is leaving for everyone. It's far easier to mock and scoff at leaders than actually understand them, good and bad, as real people. Easier to view them as saints or devils than as men and women. But that's a love fail. It allows us to act other than how we would towards someone we had any brotherly love for whatever. A saint or devil isn't someone we can love as a brother or sister. They are above or below it, so we don't have to. But a leader who takes power and bad stuff happens? That's another human being. How to connect to, relate to, and understand that person? A leader may well insist upon a disconnected higher place beyond our influence. But really, in the eyes of God, we're human beings. We're supposed to love each other and act accordingly. So there's no getting out of that for either of us, no matter what the other decides to do. In the case of ecclesiastical leaders, it might be better not to judge their success as leaders based on a book they wrote or how kind and gracious people thought they were, not even on how eloquent or informed or smart they were. It might be better to look at the state of the group that was under their shepherding toward the end of their tenure and see in what condition they are leaving it. Well-fed, sensible, close-knit, solid, and strong? A safe place to bring new folks just learning about Jesus? A place better than it was before they took power? or a shattered wasteland, fled by all but a few lean, hungry-eyed survivors, combing the ruins, trying to get by, a place one wouldn't feel right about sending a new convert to worship. And ultimately, I think it's always good to differentiate between what a leader of a group does and what the group itself does, and to wonder how much leadership actually went on and how much of it was necessary. So I think whenever people with membership and status in the Brethren exclude my parents or my friends and their own friends and relatives from worshipping God in their own birth culture and being treated like regular folks in it, they aren't crazy. They don't have horns. There's no cackling delight in causing mayhem. Not at all. They're just thoughtless and scared and purposely in denial. 
I think they can sense the present necessity for change, for repentance, approaching like a tsunami. And I think they try to stave it off any way they can and hope to die before it arrives fully. But it is already here. And we're staving it off with pushing people away and refusing to think about things and reach epiphanies which have been standing outside our front doors for some time now. I have seen many brethren people, as they become old men and women, kind of racing toward the grave, hoping to reach it without ever needing to object and be punished or speak out and lose status in their group. Often they are used as figureheads while they do this. They just need to keep their seats at that table for a decade or two at most. They know the consequences for not fitting in and not going along with legalistic systems. They know that repentance requires change, and they know what people think of change. They know what has already happened to so many people who have changed. People like my dad. They know the power in a person suddenly looking at you suspiciously and saying, You know what? You've changed. You're not the person I used to know. So their defense mechanism, their method of coping, is to be thoughtless about everything, to live like the past but refuse to talk about the past, to stomp on growth, to discredit anyone who wants to consider any of it, to try to keep any deeper awareness from spreading throughout the ranks of the young, just as if the truth will wreck everything rather than set us all free, just as if Christ is about loving darkness and doubt rather than shining a light. Hannah Arendt writes, The trouble with Eichmann was precisely that so many were like him, and that the many were neither perverted nor sadistic, that they were, and still are, terribly and terrifyingly normal. From the viewpoint of our legal institutions and of our moral standards of judgment, this normality was much more terrifying than all the atrocities put together. What good does it do to dwell on the past errors like the Holocaust? I believe it alerts us to present dangers and future calamities waiting just around the corner. I think it gives us the chance to not repeat the past, leads us toward growth, gives hope for younger people who are coming after us. Arendt writes that, Education is the point at which we decide whether we love the world enough to assume responsibility for it, and by the same token save it from the ruin, which, except for renewal, except for the coming of the new and the young, would be inevitable. And education, too, is where we decide whether we love our children enough not to expel them from our world and leave them to their own devices, not to strike from their hands the chance of undertaking something new, something unforeseen by us, but to prepare them in advance for the task of renewing a common world. The people who try to shut down any and all discussion and examinations of legalism and ensure no lessons about it are learned aren't Nazis. But they are bureaucrats. They are enablers. They are perpetrators of the legalistic systems. These systems literally could not go on without them. But our loving them makes it harder for them to pursue legalism. Our inviting them to respond with love, to our love, exposes any inability to love that is making the legalism possible. So can we? Can we outlove them? Do we have enough Christ in us to do that? Legalism enablers are not going to risk upsetting everything about the system where they fit. They will not risk rocking the sinking boat, unless you can make them feel love. It isn't hard at all to get the facilitators of present-day legalism to admit a vague collective error. You can get that, but no owning up to any personal responsibility over past, present, or future excesses of control. Hannah Arendt wrote that, 
When all are guilty, no one is. Confessions of collective guilt are the best possible safeguard against discovery of culprits. And the very magnitude of the crime, the best excuse for doing nothing. I've even seen some start to speak out and take a stand, get warned, and then fall right back into line. I've seen how they have been made to grovel in some specific cases, really grovel. I've seen people sent to sit in the back row until they retract their honest views of local matters. I've seen people's impending marriages interfered with until they take back what they've said. I've seen people's missionary work suddenly lose all funding and sanction until some very innocuous letters are retracted and repented of. Characteristically, perpetrators of legalism speak of expediency rather than ideology, of what works and what is rather than what should and shouldn't be. They speak of being realistic and being practical. They speak of the folly of being idealistic and naive. They claim to be serving others and not wanting to upset them. They claim to be simplifying matters for simpler people. These people are supposedly the spiritual descendants of men and women who gave their very lives rather than say they believe things they did not, of people who were tortured and executed for not taking back what they believed, of people who felt honored to be able to sacrifice themselves for what they believed in. During the Holocaust, there was a German man named Diedrich Bonhoeffer. He was not of Jewish descent and shouldn't have had to fear for his life. Hitler was fixing the Great Depression in Germany specifically for people like Diedrich Bonhoeffer. There was a place for him in Hitler's new Germany. Bonhoeffer was a Christian theologian and writer. He could have escaped to America or Europe and never had to worry about the Nazis. He could also have quietly sided with the Nazis, as most of his countrymen had done. Or he could have stayed in Germany and simply shut his mouth. What good could he do? But Bonhoeffer believed that as a Christian, he had to do and say more about what was happening to his neighbors, the Jews. It ended up getting him killed. Bonhoeffer wrote, Should the church be trying to erect a spiritual reign of terror over people by threatening earthly and eternal punishment on its own authority and commanding everything a person must believe and do to be saved? Should the church's word bring new tyranny and violent abuse to human souls? It may be that some people yearn for such servitude, but could the church ever serve such a longing? When Holy Scripture speaks of following Jesus, it proclaims that people are free from all human rules, from everything which presumes, burdens, or causes worry and torment of conscience. In following Jesus, people are released from the hard yoke of their own laws to be under the gentle yoke of Jesus Christ. Bonhoeffer lived what he wrote, and he died because of it at the hands of his own countrymen, because he didn't fit in and wasn't quiet. As a result, we still have his words, and they mean something. I have to think Diedrich Bonhoeffer shows us a bit about what it would be like to live more like Jesus did. Jesus would never have kept silent for decades in the name of avoiding social or ecclesiastical awkwardness. Jesus would not have helped oppress people by that kind of silence either to keep the peace. We aren't made of the same solid stuff as those people who went before us. We give in. We take back true things we said. We apologize for being who God made us. We sacrifice the needs of our children to protect our personal, familial, and church reputations. We support people who are doing harm and silence those who would bring things to light. 
We vilify and punish people with good intentions who need our support. We make choices based on how things might seem rather than on what is, on what people will think rather than what people need. We have victims, and we blame our victims. The answer to all of this is love. We need to start taking it more seriously, loving more and fearing less. We aren't Joseph Stalin or Adolf Hitler, but too often we are Adolf Eichmann. We claim it's not our responsibility. We claim it's out of our hands. We claim we have to go along because there is a curious passivity in so much of what we do. When we are nasty, we are passive-aggressive, more often than blunt, as the world counts bluntness. When we deny communion to, socially ostracize, warn others to avoid the company of, or even divorce groups of people in our church group, we tend to present it as something we're forced to do, that we've been left with no choice, that the matter is out of our hands. We are not, we stridently affirm, our brother's keepers. It wasn't us, it was those guys. We seem to view pleasing God entirely in terms of being passive, not doing things, submitting to things being quiet, quieting dissenting voices and boat rockers. And on those occasions when someone has some sort of grievance against us, we seem to be able to absolve ourselves of all agency in the matter. We maintain deniability of most things almost all of the time. We're just obeying scripture. I'm only repeating what I was told. In the words of Ruth, We were taught that being godly is sitting on our asses and praying until the cows come home, instead of actually being guided by God to say or do something with him as a team. The idea that I might have to say or do stuff, stuff that not everyone in my church culture or family was going to support or understand, for example, writing books, was terrifying at first. But it's absolutely worth it. It's part of how you get to know God, doing stuff with him, for him, hoping it's useful to what he's up to, knowing if it's useless to him, it just gets burned up, and knowing how he feels about things of value that are hidden or buried. Christ saved us so that we might be free. God who sent him has called us to live in freedom.